Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, author Sally Keene discusses her books, I Am Regina and Moon of Two Dark Horses. Sally Keene, author of I Am Regina and Moon of Two Dark Horses, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? I believe I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was young, but I didn't think that I could be one. I didn't believe in myself. I didn't think I had the talent. And so for a long time I would write poetry and short stories that my father would keep, often about winged horses like Pegasus. I went on to college where I majored in English literature. And then I went on to get a degree in library science because I loved books. They took me to places I'd never been before. And they involved me in the kind of adventures that I longed to have. But I never once thought that I was talented enough to create an adventure of my own, a fiction book of my own. And so it took me a very long time. When I was in my, gosh, late 30s, my husband and I moved to Pennsylvania. And I couldn't get a job as a librarian. And I thought, both my husband and I love to travel. And I needed to do something more than stay at home with my two daughters, whom I loved de deeply. But I wanted to do a little bit more. And I thought, well, I don't think I could write fiction, because that's such a magical kind of thing. But maybe I could write nonfiction. And I talked to my husband about traveling and about Pennsylvania, because he knows the back roads of Pennsylvania. And we decided to write a travel book on the area. We traveled all over southeastern Pennsylvania. We visited over 150 attractions. And uh, our book, Hexcursions, Day Tripping That's in and Around Pennsylvania's Dutch Country, that book right there came out in 1982. The writing of this book taught me several things. First of all, it taught me, yet, yes, I could write nonfiction. It taught me about the discipline of being a writer, of sitting down every day and writing whether you felt like it or not. And uh, it also taught me that you had to be alone with yourself. And that was the hardest thing for me, because I love being with people. But to write, you do have to be alone. To be perfectly honest, when we'd finished writing the travel book, I didn't know if I ever wanted to write again, because it was such hard work. And it was lonely work. But writing is like a disease. And, and once the bug bites you, it doesn't let you go. So after I finished excursions, I decided I wanted to try something else I wanted to try fiction. And so I took a course in writing fiction. So all along, that urge was inside me to do it. I just didn't think I had the talent. And the nonfiction book showed me that maybe I did. And then I started to pursue my, my career as a writer of fiction. Now, these two books are juvenile fiction, or books or for young, young readers. Yeah. Why did you decide to write for that group? I think uh, there's a voice inside of each one of us that we write out of. In fact, one of the journeys in becoming a writer is finding your true voice. 
You'll hear that a lot when you talk to writers. What is your voice? The voice inside me is a teenage voice, I believe, or a young adult voice, anywhere from 10 to 14. That's the voice I feel at home with. I was a young adult librarian. I worked with teenagers and young and uh, older children, and I love that age group. So I write out of that part of me. Maybe someday I'll write an adult book, but I just identify with this age group. I identify with their angst, their search for identity, which is certainly what I Am Regina is about in some ways, a search for identity. It just connected with the core of me. Also, there is a saying, the Native Americans have this wonderful saying that a story stalks a writer, and if it finds you worthy, it comes to live in your heart. The stories of these two books were stories about young adults that came to live in my heart, and I had to tell those stories. So for a variety of reasons, that's why I wrote them. However, I believe that these stories, in some senses, are ageless because I've had many adults read them and enjoy them as much as the young adult audience I've been writing for. And I will say young adult is a tricky term because in the 70s that term was identified with, with books that broke through barriers and changed um, the, changed the um, definition of what children's books are because they wrote about drugs, teenage pregnancy, that type of thing. My books aren't like that. They're, they're really more for, the, for an age group of 10 to 14, which is um, right between children's and young adult lit literature. So I'm writing out of who I am. What's different about writing for that age group as opposed to writing for adults? What, what do you do when you, when you write it? What's different? You have to present things more clearly, more simplistically in some sense. You can have good literature, and literature should have different layers. But if you look at the difference between I Am Regina and Moon of Two Dark Horses, Moon of Two Dark Horses is more sophisticated in many, it, it's on many levels. I Am Regina is a little bit more simplistic. And so um, the hardest thing, I think, is, is to make, especially with historical fix, fiction, is to make it accessible to that younger reader. Adults have a large background of experience to draw on while a child or a young adult does not. So you have to really have your story focused. Are kids in that age group reading these days? Oh, I hope so. It worries me. I was just at a discussion where uh, the associate producer of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood spoke, and she said that a child on the average watches television seven hours a day. That's a real dangerous kind of precedent because there are some valuable things about television. Of course, we're on it right now. But you, you don't think the way you do with a book. You don't use your imagination the way you do with a book. And also with the Internet, with the computers taking up a large amount of time, I, I would hope that kids continue to read and have it to be a vital part of their lives because if they don't, um, I'm worried about what's going to happen to civilization. I really am. I, I visited, I do a number of school visits, and I visit middle schools, and several teachers have told me now that children are starting to think in sound bites, that they have trouble reading long passages, understanding them, and then writing an essay about them. So that's worrisome, because I think life in all its richness is about being able to make connections between things. And, and you can learn to do that through reading. I don't think you can learn it through sitcoms where your attention spans 15 minutes and then you've got a commercial in 15 minutes again. 
So I certainly hope that uh, reading is still a vital part of young people's lives. Is there a way books can compete with television? Compete. I don't like that word, compete. Um, a book is a private thing between you and the book. When you read a book, you create a reality, whereas television is more of a public thing, and it's, it's the producers and whoever's putting on the program sort of telling you what to think, what to believe, whereas it's when it's just you and a book, you create your own reality. And I just think that's very valuable. And a book can take you more inside people's heads. You get to walk in their shoes far more than you could with a television. I don't like to see them competing, maybe complimenting each other. Because you can learn a lot from television, too, as I'm sure you know. But, but I hope everybody makes time for reading in their lives, or something is really going to be lost. Let's talk about this first book, I Am Regina. This came out in 1991. Yes. Is that right? And it is about, uh, can you tell us what it's about briefly? Yes. First of all, I'll tell you where I came across the story because it's kind of interesting. When my husband and I were researching our travel book, Excursions, we attended the Kutztown Folk Festival. Back then, they used to reenact a kidnapping of a young girl by Indians during the French and Indian Wars. And I never saw the reenactment. I went to the Folk Festival, but I never saw this reenactment. But I read about it in the program. And what amazes me to this day is how two lines in a program could lead me into writing a 240-page novel. But I was curious. You know, I knew there had to be more to the story than just a kidnapping, and indeed there was. It, uh, Regina lived, before she was kidnapped by Indians, um, outside of Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. Which was is that? Uh, that's just north of Harrisburg. It's not that far from where we are right now. She lived on a farm with her, her mother and her father and her two brothers and her sister, Barbara. It, the action starts in 1755, just as the French and Indian Wars are beginning. The Indians come down over the Allegheny Mountains, and they attack Regina's home. Her mother is away at the mill having the grain ground that day, and Regina's at home with her father and her sister and her two brothers when the Indians attack the cabin. They kill the, the brother and the father, and they take Regina and her sister captive. They take them out into the wilderness, and at a fork in the Indian path, Regina is parted from her sister Barbara. She's taken to the Ohio region. Now, Regina lives nine years with the Indians out there. She's forbidden to speak the white man's tongue. She's dressed like an Indian. She's expected to act like one. And uh, initially, she hates the Indians for what they've done to her family. But gradually, as she comes to understand them, and live with them. She begins to see their side of the story and what's been happening to them during the wars. Anyway, during her captivity, she is forbidden to speak her white man's language, but she remembers several important things from her childhood. Some hymns that her mother used to sing to her and Bible passages that her parents had taught her. She was taught to read from the Bible the way many people were back then. And. Uh, during her captivity, she undergoes some traumatic experiences. And so she does lose all memory of her home and family, even her white man's name. The only thing she remembers are these hymns and these Bible passages. After a nine-year captivity, Regina is freed by a man named Colonel Bouquet. He takes her along with other captives who've been taken during these wars to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which 
again, is not far from Harrisburg. And ads are placed in all the newspapers. If you've lost a relative in the war, please come here to claim them. Well, the day that everybody comes to Carlisle to claim their lost relatives, Regina can't recognize anyone in the crowd. And of course, she doesn't speak the language. She speaks uh, Indian. And there is one old woman who seems to recognize her, but the woman's hair is white like snow. And Regina, in her dreams, she's seen her mother with hair the color of a hickory nut and pale skin. And, and this woman looks at her, and Regina thinks, I don't know this woman. I wish I did. Her face is kind. I'd love to have her for my mother, but she doesn't look familiar. The woman, in turn, sees something in Regina that reminds her of her daughter. And she turns to Colonel Bouquet in despair, and she said, you know, that girl over there looks a little bit like my daughter might have looked, but she's, she's tall, she's grown up, she looks like an Indian. I mean, what is there that um, might help me recognize her? And Colonel Bouquet said, was, is there any kind of birthmark she might have? And the mother said, no. And he said, is there anything you might have done for her when she was a child, something very special that she would never have forgotten? Well, the mother said, I used to sing for her. And Colonel Bouquet said, we'll sing for her now. And so the mother started start singing this hymn that has brought Regina such courage in her time of hardship. And Regina joins her in singing it. And that's how the two of them are reunited. So it's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's a compelling story. And I had that to work for when I was going to write this book. And it wasn't an easy story for me to tell. It took me three years to write it. And uh, at times I felt like giving up. But then I thought, my gosh, it's such a gorgeous story. And I had this picture of a tombstone that we have here that I hung on my wall. The inscription on it reads, Regina Leininger, in legend Regina Hartman, as a small child held Indian captive, 1755 to 1763, identified by her mother singing the hymn, Dokmik Gonzaline. And so when I felt like giving up, I would look at that and think, I have to tell this story. And I think the beauty of, of the retelling is not only uh, Regina's courage and faith in times of hardship, but how she came to uh, love and understand what the Indians were going through during this difficult time. Uh, she goes through a real transformation, as I did researching this book. I've told a lot of people that um, when I was growing up, I didn't like history because I thought history was just the dry memorization of names and dates, and I had trouble memorizing things. It wasn't until I met Regina that I realized that history, even the word itself, is composed of story. And I think it's story that grabs us reluctant historians into uh, a love of the past, and it's story that makes us realize that history is as much a part of the present as my sitting across here from you. I mean, it's a part of us. There is a scene in I Am Regina where the soldiers come to rescue her. And at that point, she has such loyalty to the Indians. And the woman who's taking care of her, she was a harsh woman, but in some ways she was loving. Her name was Wolfen. She called Regina flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And the white soldiers come to rescue you, her, and they tell Regina, we've come to take you home, to your white man's home. And Regina can't remember her white man's home except in dreams. But there's a longing for her to find it. So she feels torn in two between 
the Indians with whom she lived nine years of her life and the whites with whom she lived ten. And there's a line she cries out, who am I, in that passage. I think every adolescent and, and even many of us adults wonder, who am I? That's something universal that transcends time. And so I would hope with historical fiction that when children read it, they can realize that what happens in the past is very much a part of the present also. So it was, this was a book that was transformational for me. It changed my life in many ways. Can you give a little bit of background? You said the, the French and Indian War. Who fought in that, and how did the Indians get involved in it? Uh, it was the French and the British fighting over uh, a land in America. And they would, the French were always seemed to be closer to the Indians. They treated them with respect, and they seemed to be more grounded in their way of life. So the French would gather Indian allies to fight against the British. The British, in turn, would gather allies to fight against the French. They were fighting for the continent. And of course, uh, the white man's wars inevitably involved the Indians in it. So French and Indian Wars is really kind of a misnomer. Uh, it, it's really the French and the British fighting for uh, the land, the new world, but they drew the Indians into it. So I suppose the British named it. I'm not sure. I'm not a historian, but perhaps the British called it the French and Indian War because of, oftentimes the French and their Indian allies were fighting against the British. And there were these Indian kidnappings? I mean, that's historically Oh, correct. my goodness, yes. Uh, there were frequent kidnappings, and I can understand why. But Indians, unlike the whites, adopted their captives and often adopted their captives and made them part of their families. Um, I have some interesting sources. Now, where did I put? There's a um, manila folder here. And it has some pri I used primary sources when I wrote this book. And in these sources, I, um, I, I wrote about Regina's, I came across the account of Regina's captivity that was given to a minister. I also came across the captivity of a man uh, called Old White Chief of the Iroquois Nation. And uh, I just want to read you what he said. Oh, here's your folder. Yeah. Th this is kind of interesting. Um, here it is. He, as a four-year-old Pennsylvania boy, Old White Chief was taken captive. And this is what he says. The last I remember of my mother, she was running, carrying me in her arms. Suddenly she fell to the ground on her face, and I was taken from her. Overwhelmed with fright, I knew nothing more until I opened my eyes to find myself in the lap of an Indian woman. Looking kindly down into my face, she smiled on me and gave me some dried deer's meat and maple sugar. From that hour, I believe she loved me as a mother. I am sure I return to her the affection of a son. So I read a number of these captivities where the person who was captured became so much a part of their Indian family that they never wanted to leave. So yes, this was very, very common. In fact, in my book, I Am Regina, there's a woman in it named Nanchetto who befriends Regina and is very loving. She's almost like a, a mother to her. Nunchetto, I don't know if she truly existed in fact, but I drew her, her from the many cases of kindness the Indians showed to whites during captivity. So she's a composite of people that I read about. 
Um, but yes, this happened very often. Another uh, incident I came across was um, when Regina is being returned to the white soldiers, she travels to uh, Fort Pitt in a wagon, and there is an Indian woman in the wagon with her. And this Indian woman is married to, I mean, it's a white woman, and she's been married to an Indian, and she's had children by that Indian. And she says to Regina, when I return to my white family, will they have anything to do with me? Will they associate with a wife of an Indian chief? And she said, and my, my husband, who has loved me so, how can I desert him? That night, after she told Regina this, she escaped from the white soldiers, and she went back to live with her Indian husband. So this happened. This was very common. So the reunion in Carlisle actually took place? That's historically correct? Oh, yes. Yes. The beauty of this story is um, I was able to find many primary sources, not many, but several that I could base it on. When Regina was freed from her captivity and she went back to live with her mother, she asked for a hymn book and the copy of the great book in which God speaks to man. That's what she called the Bible. So her mother took her to see the Reverend Henry Melcher, Melchior Muhlenberg, who was a prominent Lutheran minister who lived outside of Philadelphia. In fact, he was a founder, I believe, of the Lutheran Church in America, and Muhlenberg College is named after him. Anyway, she went to see him, and he was totally amazed because she could not speak, uh, she, her native language was German, she could not speak German for everyday talk, but when he opened the Bible, she could read whole passages of it aloud in German. And so he wrote down her account in his pastoral reports, and that's how it comes down to us today. Now, the interesting part was he did not write down her last name. And so there has been two strains of stories that have come down to us. Uh, many people say Regina's last name was Hartman. Others say it was Regina Leininger. And so on the tombstone, you have Regina Leininger in legend, Regina Hartman, because two strains of stories came down to us. The reason Regina Leininger was settled on was because the Pennsylvania German Society did a lot of research into this story. It's well-loved throughout all this area. And they discovered Regina's sister Barbara escaped from the Indians after three and a half years of captivity. She went to Philadelphia and gave her account to a writer there. And her account gelled with what happened to Regina when she was kidnapped. So they put the two accounts together and were able to figure out that she was indeed Regina Leininger. However, there may have been a Hartman that underwent a somewhat similar experience. There are Hartmans to this day that believe that Regina is a Hartman. And to them, I say, you know, for me, whether she's a Hartman or a Leininger, it's the beauty of her story that truly matters. It just grabs your heart. How did you find all these accounts of this story? Well, I st I'm a librarian by trade, and so I just started re researching it, and it is local history, and the Allentown Public Library has a wonderful local history room, so I started there. And I just started to browse through the Pennsylvania German Society proceedings, and I came across all this research they'd done on Regina. And from there, I was able to go to the primary sources. They even quoted the primary sources verbatim. And so I was able to get that. I traveled also to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, visited the historical society there. I found something very interesting there. I believe it was in part of Colonel Bouquet's papers. In his orderly book, I found one of the first examples of germ warfare 
uh, what I would call germ warfare in America, where Bouquet orders his soldiers to leave blankets infested with smallpox along the Indian trails. That shocked me. But you, you find little nuggets like that when you're, when, when you're doing this kind of research. Um, I also went to the museum in Harrisburg. You have a wonderful Native American exhibit there. And uh, I got information there. In, in Allentown, we have the Lenny Lenape Museum at the Trout Hatchery, which is wonderful. That gave me wonderful details, uh, like uh, Regina gathering milkweed floss to absorb her monthly flow. Well, that was the kind of thing that I got from that museum. It had that real earthy kind of stuff that you need. You need those details to make a story come to life. My editor calls it verisimilitude. It's using lifelike details to bring a story to life. So I tried to root it as much in history as I could, using the kind of details that would make it come alive. You said it took three years. Once you sat down and had it written, wrote the last word, what did you do with the, the manuscript? Well, it, th that's not quite how it worked. The, the reason it took me three years, I should explain, first of all, I decided I couldn't write fiction at that time, so I'd, I'd try a nonfiction article. So I wrote it for, um, I, I intended to put it in a book about wilderness women who lived on the Pennsylvania frontier. I had all these marvelous stories I'd come across while doing the travel book. And I approached the publisher of the travel book with a proposal for this wilderness women book, and while he was interested in it, his marketing staff thought there would not be enough of a market for this kind of book. And so then, that, so they turned it down and I didn't try to market it elsewhere. And then I tried to tell Regina's story as a magazine story for a historical magazine based in Pennsylvania. Initially they were interested, but then they turned it down. And I think I know the reason why. I'd already begun to fictionalize the story. So then I put it away while I developed my craft as a fiction writer and I sold magazine stories and things like that. And then uh, it began to haunt me, it began to stalk me from my file drawer. And so I took it out and I thought, you know, I'd done a lot of the research. And I sat down to begin that first chapter and I couldn't get inside her head. Because when you write fiction, you've got to know your character, you've got to get inside them. I struggled for nine days with point of view. And, and tense, you know, whether I tell it in third person or first person. Suddenly I started to write this novel in first person, present tense. I would never recommend that for anybody wanting to write a novel that encompasses nine years of history, but that's the way the voice, as I talked about much earlier in this program, came to me. And it was a kind of lyrical voice speaking in present tense. And so suddenly that was a magic. That, uh, that really, that was my muse connecting with me, and then I was on my own, and, and then I had to really work to get the story together. I'd written, I'd say, maybe nine chapters, and I went to a writer's conference in, at Trenton State College. Every year they have a writer's conference. There was a workshop there given by a local author from around here now, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Judith Gorog. She writes marvelous, scary stories. She's a great writer. And when I handed her my manuscript, I gave her my manuscript, and she wrote on it, this is the kind of story that every reader hopes to find. And she said, I want to put you in touch with my editor at Philomel Books in New York. It's a division of Putnam, Patty Gouch, because she loves this kind of book. And so 
I, I talked with Patty Gouch and she had me come up to New York to talk to her about my book and I sent her more chapters. I sent her what I thought was a novel at that point and I went up to talk with Patty. She was a wonderful editor for me. First of all, she said um, she loved my voice, the way I told the story, and that was one thing she'd never change. But I didn't have a middle to my book. You know, I had this end, beginning that I'd worked so hard on, this wonderful ending where Regina's reunited, and I had no middle. And of course, that was the life in the Indian village. And, um, and furthermore, I'd been brought up in a Navy family where you don't show your emotions. And so the whole book was told from a distance. So she, we went through the manuscript and she kept saying, how does Regina feel here? How does she feel? And it was so painful for me because suddenly I had to get inside, really get inside this character and show how she felt about what was happening. And so I left that day without a contract and my mind was reeling. I mean, this was novel writing. This is the difference between history and historical fiction because you have to get into the heart and mind of a character living over 250, almost 250 years ago to show how they felt. That way you can connect with your reader today. As I said, that emotion that transcends time. So um, Patty, I, I worked for seven months and then I sent her the revision and we went back and forth, I believe two and a half years before I got a contract on the book. And when I did, you know, I just thought that this is the most glorious thing that could ever happen. But she brought out the very best that was in me, which is what every editor, I think, should do. So that's when I said it took three years. I knew the story, by the way, nine years before it was published. Three of those years, I worked with Patty on the novel version. Those other six years were time spent in the file drawer, time spent trying to write a magazine story, um, time spent trying to write a nonfiction article. So um, I'm stubborn. I don't give up. <laughs> and, and nothing comes easy for me. But when I talk to kids in schools, you know, I say, look, you know, if you have a dream and you're willing to work hard at it, it'll come true. Maybe not exactly as you had planned, but it'll happen. So don't give up. So it, it, it happened for me. So when the book came out, how did you promote it? My publisher did, uh, did a, a lot of it at the time. The book, um, I've, did, I've given talks. I've, I've talked to teachers. I've talked. I talked at NCTE this fall, National Council of Teachers of English. I visit schools, although I don't go to schools to promote the book. I like the kids to have read the book because they need to know the story, but just to talk to them about writing and the wonderful discoveries you make while writing and, and pursuing your dreams. But I think the book has really promoted itself it, uh, because it's a great story. Apart from my retelling of it, the story is a great story. And uh, it was picked up in paperback by Bantam Doubleday Dell. And to, just to show you the power of the story, I'm not boasting because this story is a true story that's come down to us. It's uh, four foreign countries have published it. It's come out in uh, the first one that brought it out was Denmark. And I thought, my goodness, that's the You brought second. some of those along. It's, yeah. This is the Denmark? That's the Danish version. You can tell they used the same cover. The same cover as, as, the, as the paperback and as the hardback. Version. And I asked myself, well, why would Denmark bring out a story about, based in American history? Well, number one, the Danes are fascinated with Native Americans. They've recreated a Native American village over there. Plus, the story of a mother being reunited with a daughter grabs your heart. Then it came out in Germany, 
That's the German That's version. And of course, you can tell why they would have a German version because she emigrated here from Germany. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. The cover is quite different. They, uh, and as is the title, the title is Regina Schwarzervogel, which means Regina the Blackbird. And that was her, her Indian name was Skinak, which means uh, hair black as a blackbird's wing. And so they changed the title and they changed the cover. The next one to come out was the Italian one. That's in back of the Flemish, uh, La Canzone de Regina. I, I don't speak Italian. I wish I did. And again, they took a different scene to illustrate. Children love this cover. Uh, they like the immediacy of it. It, and what I find is interesting is the faces look Italian of Regina and the little girl Sarah who's kidnapped with her. Each culture sort of um, makes a, a cover appeal to their people. And the title means the Song of Regina, which is, which is a beautiful title as well. So, uh, it, and it finally came out just this year. This came out in Belgium in Flemish, Ik ben Regina. And of course, the, the art style is completely different. I don't know if uh, we use this kind of art over here in the United States. I've shown this to classrooms, and some kids really like that kind of art. It, they say it grabs them. Uh, it, it's a little different to me. It, it feels very stylized and stereotypical. But again, um, the audience is different. So it, it's really promoted itself, and, and it's being used a lot in classrooms across the country which is, is really nice. And I'm fortunate because I'm, I'm not too good at promoting. <laughs> so, um, Did you come up with the title, I Am Regina? No, I didn't. I had a terrible time with the title. I was calling it um, Alone Yet Not Alone Am I from the hymn, which is a terrible title, um, The Captivity of Regina Leininger. One day I met in New York with my editor and the assistant editor, and I said, I don't know what to call this book. And, and Patty looked at her assistant, Tracy, and she said, we were thinking of calling it, I am Regina. And I thought, wow, because it's a story of identity. In the long run, you know, who, who am I? Where do I belong? And it's not till the very, very end when her mother's holding her and saying, Regina, that she realizes, I am Regina. That's who I am. The one thing about the title is that it might turn boys off because it's, they think it's just about a girl. But I have found that, and boys are funny. Girls will read about boys, but boys don't necessarily want to read about girls. But I have found that once boys get into the story, they enjoy it as much as girls do. But when I've asked children about this title, some of them like it and some of them don't. Has anyone ever talked about making it into a movie? I think it would make a fantastic movie. People in classrooms ask me all the time, um, and I know that maybe some studios have looked at it, but nobody has done it yet. But I, I do think it would make a beautiful movie. You brought along some artifacts. Yeah. Can you show them to us and sure. tell me how you use them? Um, I brought along artifacts from both white and Indian culture. Because I write about the past and because the past was hard for me to get in touch with initially, artifacts help me. I, I have a whole speech I give called Voices from the Past, and I talk about primary sources as voices from the past, these, these diaries that I read, and I also talk about artifacts, because artifacts tell us a story, and by holding them we can get in touch with something long ago. So I, I, I have artifacts from white culture. Uh, you know what these are, don't you? What are these? 
bells. What kind of bells? <laughs> um, sleigh bells. That's right. A lot of people say cowbells. Um, why, do you know why we would have, you're going to be my kid audience uh -oh. for a minute. <laughs> do you know why we have sleigh bells? What are they needed for? I don't know. You see, you got to get real practical. Well, at night, when a sleigh would come over the snow, you wouldn't hear it coming unless you had sleigh bells on it. So it was because we didn't have um, lights on our cars. We didn't have horns. So this is a way of letting people know you were coming through the dark on your sleigh. Now, this next story might not be true, but I always tell it anyway because a, a teacher told it to me. There's an old expression you may have heard called, I'll be there with bells on. And it, well, this teacher told me it came about because if you were in an accident with your sleigh and someone came along to help you and they, they helped write your sleigh, you give them your sleigh bells as a means of thank you. So when you say, I'll be there with bells on, it means I'm not going to have an accident and everything's going to be fine. So this is out of white culture. Here's something else. I bet you don't know what this is. You know? A cookie press. <laughs> no. It's a good guess, though. This speaks to me of barns and cows and milking cows and, and taking the, the milk inside the house where the cream rises to the top, and then you churn the cream, and then you stamp it with the, churn the cream into butter. This is a butter mold, and you stamp this pretty flower on your butter. So, it you know it, it it speaks to me of pride and the love of the fancy, like the fancy Dutch. This comes down through my family, and we had I had relatives who lived in Pennsylvania. How old is that? I don't know. It may have been my great great grandmothers, but it it comes out of a past that a lot of children aren't aware of. I, I don't know how many children have ever milked a cow, or real you know just had a cow to get milk from. So I keep this, you know, just to remind me of how basic life used to be, you know. You know, in Regina, she has to go out and club mice for food. That's really basic. That's hard, and that's what happened. They had to do that. So this is from white culture. Now let me show you something completely different. After I get a drink of water here. Now look at this. This, of course, comes out of the Native American culture, which is so different from our own. Do you have any idea what this is made out of? It was an animal that was extremely important to the Eastern Woodland Indians. And it was not the buffalo. The deer. The deer, right. They couldn't have survived without the deer. This is made from the leg bone of a deer. And these are deer hooves. This is a rattle. And it would be used for ceremonial purposes or at a dance or in, if someone was sick. And um, I found, you know, in my research, it was amazing the uses they made of the deer. They'd use the sinew for sewing. They would uh, use the intestines for stuff, uh, stuffing in the stomach. They would um, suck out the marrow. They would make bone needles out of it. They would use the brains for tanning deer hides. In, in I Am Regina, there's a scene where she has to tan hides and boil brains, and it was a terrible task. So this comes out of the Native American culture. And, and I'm going to, this, of course, is a, a bone whistle. It's made from the wing bone of a turkey, because wing bones are very light and hollow, so you get the marrow out of it, and you can make a whistle out of it. I've never blown an eagle whistle on television, but I'm going to do it now. <laughs> are you ready? Be my guest. <laughs> this is to call eagles. But I, and I never can do it right.
fellow who sold me this knew really how to blow and it was beautiful and you could just imagine someone standing on a cliff blowing it and an eagle soaring down. So I've never yet brought an eagle, although some kids have told me that they thought they could do it. That's um, Native American culture. And uh, here's one, another one. Someday they'll make TV so you can smell things because this smells wonderful. This is a smudge stick. You can smell it. It's made of dried sage. It's going to get all over your carpet. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And uh, the Indians would burn a smudge stick, again, for ceremonial reasons or to drive. They were made of different things. This is sage, but they would make them out of different things or to drive mosquitoes out of your hut for a variety of reasons. I burn smudge sticks sometimes when I'm creating especially with my, my second novel, Moon of Two Dark Horses, because I'm telling that from uh, a Native American point of view. And so I would burn smudge sticks. It's like an, in, an Indian incense. I wanted to show you something. I love this artifact. This leads into a great story um, about the second book. This, um, this isn't. Do you know what this is? No. <laughs> You're not going to even try to guess. This is a net stone. It was used to weigh fish nets cast in the Susquehanna River. The shad used to swim up, up the Susquehanna. In fact, now they've, it, they used to swim up the Delaware River too, and now they have fish ladders so that the shad can swim up river. And so every year in April, the Delawares would net the shad. And this, this might be a 1,000 years old. And it comes from an area of Pennsylvania that's now called Athens, Pennsylvania. And it's at the New York-Pennsylvania border. You have a picture of that yes, here. Yes, we do. Let me dig that out. Back in uh, the Revolutionary War, this area was called Tioga Point. And two rivers met here. This was the Susquehanna River that came down this way and the Shemung River that came down. Just south of this point, of this Tioga Point, there was an Indian village known as Queen Esther's Town. And that is where this net stone comes from. Now, Moon of Two Dark Horses takes place in Queen Esther's town. And um, it's told from the point of view of an Indian boy named Kashmu. And um, I came across this story. It's a story of a quest for peace, really, uh, with an Indian and a white boy. I came across it because when we were doing our travel book, just north of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, there's a place known as Wyoming. And at Wyoming, there's a historical marker that's placed above this huge rock, a moccasin-shaped rock that's enclosed in an iron cage. And the rock is called the Bloody Rock. According to legend, an Indian queen, Queen Esther, supposedly um, bashed in the heads of 10 American captives taken during one of the bloodiest battles in Pennsylvania's history, the Wyoming Valley Massacre. When was that? That massacre happened in 1778, in July of 1778, right during the American Revolution. And a lot of people said Queen Esther could not have possibly done this atrocious act because she wore a white man's cross around her neck. She spoke the white man's tongue. She was part white herself. She was known for her friendship with settlers who lived in the areas. Why in the area? Why would she turn on them and kill them? And so I thought, oh, there sounds like there's a story here. Why would she have done this? What was going on at this time in this area of Pennsylvania during the American Revolution? 
So I started to research Queen Esther's story, and I discovered that her son, her Kashmu, had been killed one day prior to this massacre, and that was the reason given for what happened at the Bloody Rock. Kashmu was real? Um, we know she had a son who was killed. Some sources called him Kashmu. Others called him Gu Singh. So I settled on Kashmu. And so I decided to show her story from her son's point of view. And what eventually emerged was an entirely different creature than I first thought of. And that massacre, or what happened at Bloody Rock, became two lines in a 218-page novel about friendship, the friendship between an Indian boy and an American settler. And it was a very, very difficult book for me to write. And it, it took me four years. I knew the story 13 years. It took me four years to write it because it was a story that hadn't been told before. What happened to this? It was a Delaware Indian village. What happened to these people? What happened to the Delawares and to the Iroquois neighbors to the north during the American Revolution? Because they were torn in two by the white man's armies. And so this is where this rock comes in because I traveled to this area several times to write about it. It's a beautiful area. The endless mountains of Pennsylvania are here. They're, always, they're covered in mist. It's a land that the, the glaciers came down this far and pulled back, so it's a land full of fossils, full of uh, mammoth tusks, and uh, Indian skeletons have been found here that date back to a thousand years. I traveled all over the area, and a wonderful man named Ted Keir was my guide. And while there, he gave me this net stone. And I would hold on to it while I was trying to write this book. Well, one day, as I was working on this story, a ringing phone startled me, and I dropped the rock. And you can see it broke into three pieces. I glued them back together because it meant so much to me, but it wasn't the same. In spite of this, I kept on writing. I had to write through the story. I had to get to the ending. And in the summer, I finished writing through, and I sent the manuscript to my editor. And she'd been working on and off with me for a couple of years on the manuscript. And she called me, and she offered me a contract for the book, even though we both knew it still needed a lot of work. It was highly metaphorical at that point, and we can talk about that later. So anyway, I wrote Ted Keir at Tioga Point, and I said, could you please send me another net stone? It would put me in touch with something long ago and far away, and it would help me tell a story that's been so hard to tell. I feared I'd never hear from him because um, he was a very busy man, and his wife had been ill. She'd been quite ill. And I didn't. Well, seven weeks later, I went to meet with Patty in New York, and she talked with me for over seven hours. Can you, I tell kids, can you imagine that? You know, I had marks all over my manuscript. She was trying to bring out the story that was in it. And so I went home that day without a contract, and the next day I went to Maryland to visit with my, yes, it is, it's dedicated to her and my mother. I went to visit my mother, who was dying of lung cancer at the time. And I stayed with my mother for three days. When I came back to Pennsylvania and I saw a manuscript that needed so much work, I said, you know, I don't have a contract yet. Why should I bother myself with trying to tell this story? Is, is it really worth it? It's, it's too convoluted to sort out. It's such a hard story to tell. And uh, my life is too difficult right now. I haven't signed that contract. I want to burn the book. I just want to get rid of it. I literally wanted to burn it. Well, at this point, this is where a star story really stalks a writer. Because at that very moment when I was at my darkest, my dog began to bark, and the, the mailman had arrived. 
and he had a package from Tioga Point. And in it were two net stones. These are little, these are net stones from right below the river where Kashmir's village stood, and a, um, a flint blade, an Onondaga flint blade from Karanchuan, which is the sacred hill which figures so prominently in the story. So then I knew, you know, I had no choice. I had to go on telling this story. Uh, it was stalking me. And indeed, I, I did finish it. I wrote another seven months, I believe, and I got through it. And it came out in the fall of 1995. And it will be coming out in paperback this fall. And uh, it's also been bought by three foreign countries, so it will be coming out overseas. So artifacts have turned out to be, to be very important to me. But they're also like signs, um, like connections we learn to make in our lives that you know, tell us don't give up hope. Just keep on going, and that's what I needed. You know, I needed that mailman to come with a package. Now, this book is different. There's a lot of mysticism in this yes. book, and dreams, and a, a Manitou he is, Kashmu is looking for. What is a Manitou? It's a guardian spirit. Every, every I shouldn't say every Indian, but the group that Kashmu belonged to, and I believe most tribes throughout the United States, when a boy reaches puberty, he goes through the rite of passage, which is called a vision quest, where they go off alone into the wilderness. Sometimes they um, take some kinds of powerful medicines, and they go out and they wait for a Manitou to come to them, a guardian spirit, who will remain with them for the rest of their lives. Sometimes they come back empty. They're not blessed with a Manitou. Other times they are, and it gives them great courage and something to turn to. And it tells them a little bit about who they're going to be in life. And so it's a rite of passage that, that many Indians share. And this book is heavy with mysticism, and it's quite metaphorical. And I didn't mean it to be that way, but once I started to get into the mind of this boy who's part Indian and part white, he lives in a time of what I call acculturation, they're, where they're, they're living in cabins like the whites. They have cows. His mother knows Christianity. She's been exposed to it. So he's at uh, a cross-cultural kind of point. Anyway, as I got into reading books like Black Elk, Elk Speaks, which is a wonderful book, and The Visions of Lame Deer, and reading about these people who lived so long ago, I began to, I don't know, think maybe the way they would have thought. And I couldn't tell this book without mysticism and legend and metaphor becoming a real part of it, if I was going to tell it from the point of view that chose me or that I chose. And so it's a different book. It's, it's showing, I would hope, the revolution from a different viewpoint. You know, what happened to the Indians during the American Revolution? What happened to them? Um, they were torn in two because the British and the Americans courted them with needed trade goods. The Indians had become dependent on white trade goods, on muskets and on lead for bullets and powder to fire those guns. Because gun, bows and arrows were not match, they felt bows and arrows were no match against musket balls. So they had become gradually dependent on white goods. When the war started, goods became scarce. And the British uh, would send traders into Indian territory saying, you, you become allied with the British king, and we will give you all that you need, the trade goods that you need. For a long time, the Delawares and the Iroquois nation resisted 
these enticements. And even the Americans would hold back trade goods from the Indians. And of course, they felt like they were being starved because they needed these. And so gradually, as the war intensified and got into these frontier areas, the Indians felt pressured into either joining the Americans or the British. There's an old saying that they have, you can't live in the woods and stay neutral. And so gradually, this war between the Americans and the British tore the Iroquois nation in two. Uh, many tribes allied with the uh, British, the Mohawks, the Senecas, the Onondagas, and the Cayugas, whereas the, um, let's see, the Oneidas and the Tuscaroras joined the American side, and the Delawares were divided. They didn't know what to do, who to go with. They were trying desperately to stay neutral and gradually they were brought into the war. And of course, they were destroyed by that. Because if they weren't going to be destroyed, if they joined the British, the Americans would destroy them, and vice versa. In fact, the title of that book, Moon of Two Dark Horses, is based on a, a vision that the Delaware Indians said that they saw in the moon right around this time, where the shadowy figures of two dark horses were fighting to possess their brother moon. And indeed, one horse overpowers the other, and the moon goes black. And so it, it all kind of tied into what was happening to them. That vision really happened? According to sources, it did. It, it came down through historical sources that they saw this. And so then I used that as a metaphor for the book, Moon of Two Dark Horses. You said you uh, talked to school groups yes. a couple times a year. What do you say to them? Oh, I, well, I talked to them. I talked to them about a lot of things. I talked to them about these two books and about primary voices and how they can speak to us and to keep journals because one day a writer like me may come across their journals and write their stories. Journals are very important for showing the everyday things in life and what matters to us. I, I also talked to them about, about history and about artifacts and how they can bring history to life for them. I talked to them about the writing process and what writing has done for me and what I hope will do for them as they try to tell their own stories. Because I think in telling stories, you make connections that bring meaning into your own lives. So, you know, I, I talk to them about 45 minutes. And I also go in and, and I, I show them um, different copies of my books. And I talk to them about the art that goes into even a hardback book with a cover. How do you choose a scene uh, for a cover? And, yeah, and the struggles you go through as a writer. Do you write every day? I try to. I try to. Every, every morning. Some days I get obsessed with it, especially when I'm revising. Creating is hard for me. And so I might work three or four hours, but when I'm revising, sometimes I can work six to eight hours. Do you so. work on a computer or typewriter? Computer. Computers are great, but they're also dangerous. And I tell kids this because you, it's so easy to revise. Uh, do you write with a computer? Mm -hmm. So you know, when you see those words on the screen, they're so easy to move around and change. And I started as a poet, so I'm in love with the sounds of words. And I can get so lost on the screen and forget the story that came before that screen and what came after. So I find I have to print it out every so often and do things in pencil. Or else I can just get lost in a couple of paragraphs. What are you working on now? I'm, I'm working on a, an entirely different kind of novel, and it's had its own challenges. It's, it's a story I'm fashioning out of something that happened in my own life and changing it around and creating a story. It's been extremely difficult for me to do. 
I've been working on it for two years, and I've got another revision ahead of me. And I, I'm working with the same editor I worked before, who is, is wonderful for me. She helps to bring out what I have. So um, it's a story of a young girl and her uh, thoroughbred ex-racehorse who's been um, abused and almost starved to death. She could have had any horse she wanted. Her grandfather was going to buy it for her. But she chooses this horse. And when her father sees it, he's absolutely appalled. He said, you know, out of all the horses, why did you choose this one? And the horse is um, very difficult for her to control. But so is her father. Um, he's, he's grieving because of her mother who's died. And uh, he's a heavy drinker. So he gets out of control, too. And in, it, in a way, he's that horse. So it's the story of the girl, her father, and the thoroughbred horse, and trying to come to terms with life and controlling life. <laughs> and uh, it's going to take me a while to get it written. You grew up around horses? I did, yes. I loved horses. I still do. I don't have them anymore. But um, I bet people think that book's about horses because A Moon of Two Dock Horses, of course, has horses in the title. Uh, but I, I started riding, when I, riding horses when I was about seven. And then when I was 12, I got my 11. I, my grandfather bought me my first horse. And of course, I was the one who chose that battered and abused thoroughbred. I wanted to change her. I wanted to change the world. And um, I also had another horse after that as well. I had two horses and ran a boarding stable. So rode when I was in college. These are the books, I Am Regina and Moon of Two Dark Horses. Sally Keene, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.